Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. I want to know how football came into your life because I know that your granddad was quite a top-rated goalkeeper in the Maltese divisions. <laughs> yeah. Joined South End's Academy when I was eight or nine and was in there till I was about 13. That summer, there was the World Cup in Germany and the uh, World Cup was the first sort of international tournament where I was putting bets on and I was in the bookies a lot. I was earning decent money and I just like put all my money in the machine as soon as I got paid. So that's when I knew it was a big problem. By that point, I'd lost about 20 grand in total. There was a branch of the bank on campus and I went there and I just said, give me all the cash. I just take the cash. I think if, if it wasn't for uh, an intervention from from family, well, I don't know what I would have done. I, I was I was feeling very very suicidal, to be honest. I want to know how how being involved in politics has shaped your personality. Well, I've definitely grown a thicker skin. I I was in at the deep end. Nothing can prepare you for something like that. Hello and welcome to the Football and Feelings podcast, the podcast that uses football as a common interest to delve deeper into the ups and downs of life that we all experience inevitably at some point. Uh, You're joining me for the start of season three, which means you've got a lovely little back catalogue to go through if you haven't caught any of the previous episodes. For now, if you do enjoy this episode or you've enjoyed some of the others, head over to iTunes, leave a five star rating, all that boring stuff that you hate people bringing up in the intro of a podcast but for now I'm joined by Arsenal fan former spokesperson for Jeremy Corbyn director of cleanup gambling and the coalition against gambling ads and co-founder of the Gamban app it's Matt Zab cousin how you doing Matt hi Liam Uh, I'm great thanks Uh, I, I, I had my vaccine on Tuesday and um, I, I feel very liberated now. Uh, mm. I, obviously, it's just the first dose, but I feel like hopefully the light is at the end of the tunnel now. I can feel things getting back to normal. So, yeah, positive. I'm feeling positive. And now you've got a direct line to Bill Gates in your ear any time of day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, suddenly suddenly have a real affection for Bill Gates. And, uh, yeah, just... You know, Father Bill. So, yeah. (laughs) One thing that I I didn't bring up in that intro um, that I I need to bring up uh, before we touch on some some other topics, um, because I don't want to undermine them at all. And that's that you're credited for bringing the term gammon into the mainstream. (laughs) 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 I needed to bring this up. Um, Is is talking about that on Sky News the holy grail of your career? (laughs) <laughs> That's bizarre, wasn't it? I, I wrote uh, something, I think it was in February 2018 uh, for Huck Magazine, just on like the phenomenon of, uh, of Gammon and, uh, you know, this, this sort of archetype uh, demographic who, mm. um, you know, reaction reviews and all this sort of stuff. And it just sort of resurfaced a, a couple of months later. <laughs> I, think, I think it was Lucy Fisher at the Times who wrote uh, an op-ed uh, just basically saying that this was kind of, I don't know, the left condescending uh, the north and whatever some nonsense along those lines and nothing to do with politics or whatever but um yeah and it just became a talking point and then i was on telly 
defending the fact that uh, gammon was not a racist term. I mean, the idea that this was some kind of like racism against white people is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just so much prejudice against middle-aged white men that, you know, they're just, they're just clutching at straws to find something to get offended at. <laughs> um, we will dive into uh, to some football chat to begin with. Um, I want to know how football came into your life, because I know that your granddad was quite a top-rated goalkeeper in the Maltese divisions. Huh. Yeah, uh, he was. He played for he played for Valletta and Floriana in Malta. Um, and... Uh, this was in the, the 50s and 60s. And he actually, when he came to the UK to do a uh, degree, uh, he, he played, after his sort of career more to end it, he played for Northern Universities as part of Hull University. So yeah. um, he, was, he was pretty good. I mean, I think he probably would have been professional here if he grew up here too. And uh, yeah, I just started playing football from a really young age. Um and played in goal and joined South Ends Academy when I was eight or nine and was in there till I was about 13. And uh, yeah, I got, got coached by, I had really good coach, they had really good coaches. So, so like Steve Tilson was, was in charge of the academy. Steve Tilson was the manager of South End subsequent to that, um, who oversaws consecutive promotions from League Two to the Championship. And um, yeah, that was when we had like Freddie Eastwood playing and stuff. And when Steve Tilson was in charge of the academy, we had a lot more involvement from the first team and training. So I had the real benefit of like, at uh, the time, the goalkeeper there was Mel Capleton. And he used to like do training sessions. So I got coached by him and um, I got coached by the number two goalkeeper, Martin Margotson as well. Martin Margotson now is an England goalkeeper coach. So... <laughs> I'd like real. I was really lucky at that age to have benefited from all that top coaching and stuff. And I still play now, but I just it wasn't for me. I got to the point where I was, I was a bit short for my age, which didn't help because um, obviously back then you moved from very small goals right into eleven side mm-hmm. goals, and it was just like a bit of a you know I was a bit a little bit at a disadvantage compared to what it was, but. Um, I just thought I was hated football. It got to the point where I, I mean, sorry, I'm on the football fitness podcast, but it got to the point at that age where I was just like, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It's very yeah. strange. And I look back and I'm like, oh, maybe I should have sort of stuck it out or maybe, you know, but um, I just think it was just too, too much. If I had pushy parents, I might have, I might have carried on with it. But yeah, anyway, I still play now and I enjoy it now. So that's the main thing. Mm-hmm. You're still playing goal now? Yeah, still playing goal now. Yeah, played um, just in Sunday Sundays. You know, nothing mm-hmm. too serious. Um, I did t- get involved in the Saturday team for a brief time, but I just thought it was too much of a commitment. I like going to I like going to the Emirates on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ah, oh, class man. I, I had no idea that you, that you played in goal. Um, through the research that I'd done, um, I all went through Southend's academy. So perhaps knew your granddad's history though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 um, uh, I've I've always, basically always played in goal. I mean, it, yeah, I really, really. I still play. I still play five aside Wednesday nights. Do you do you play at all? No, I haven't played in quite a while. I used to play in goal actually um, when I was younger, and sort of similarly, I, I, I felt like I was okay at seven aside. Um, then everyone else had a growth spurt, and I just didn't. Um, so I in an eleven aside goal, I just 
looked so tiny um, and I just got bored of playing football pretty much at that point. And I started playing again as an adult, but um, I'm keen to get involved again. I want to get back in the Sunday league at some point whilst I've still got the legs, but um, I, I, I'm not sure if I can handle some of the shithousery that comes with it. <laughs> but this is the thing though, isn't it? You, cause in our generation, um, I think it's in race league, but like we went sort of from seven aside pitches and goals straight into 11 aside and that, and then if it, all of a sudden you're like in proportion to the pitch, you're, you're really small. Mm. Um, the pitch is, is like way too big for what the game is supposed to be. So then you end up playing this kind of kick and rush where you just, yeah. it's like who can boot the ball fast f- furthest and who can, who's the quickest. And then you end up with this kind of the players that stand out are the ones that can kick it the furthest and the ones yeah. that can kind of, who are, who are like physically strong. So you don't develop the technical players. So like, I wonder whether the move now that we have the transition between like seven aside pitches and then you have like the nine aside mm. goals and pitches now, if that's actually really helped the development of English players, I presume it has. I, might, I would have thought that's why they did it because actually now, you know, you've, there is more of a focus in that interim age range on you know, developing your actual technical ability rather than like how far mm. you can, how fast you can run. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a massive difference. You're playing like on the, almost a quarter of that of an eleven aside pitch to a full size eleven aside pitch. I remember being in in year six and um, we had a, a penalty shootout in the school tournament, and I I'm still impressed by this. If I'm honest, I saved ten out of twelve, and I was the only one to score one as as the goalkeeper. But we lost because I, I conceded two. But when we got to eleven aside pitch, I don't think I don't think I've ever I ever saved a penalty for obvious reason. No, it's it, even now. It's it, it, you have to guess, mm. but there's no, you know, you, you can't reach it otherwise. So, exactly. um, uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I absolutely, absolutely love playing goal, and the positions change so much. I think I would probably, uh, I would probably struggle a bit more. I've never been that good with my feet, so I'd probably struggle a little bit more now with what with the demands of it than than what it not, was. Not I mean, modern day I, keeper. Nah, not really. I mean, I, I you know, I. I Never, re- I'm, I'm very, I'm good shot stopping. I suppose most keepers are, but like, um, yeah, but that like, not, not really, kind of, not really a sweeper. No. Yeah, fair enough. We touched on there briefly. You going to the Emirates very often as an Arsenal fan. How do you feel? This is quite a general question, I guess. But how do you feel at the moment with the current process and everyone alludes to the process and the setup of the club? I think I, I, I'm quite optimistic about it. I I think um, that they made the right decision to get someone in who uh, who they could, you know, try to rebuild something from scratch. Effectively, um, I think he 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 has a, a plan, mm-hmm. and clearly has a, a profile of player that he wants to bring in and um, a way he wants to play. And I, I think, um, you know, we saw glimmers of it in the FA Cup run last season. And obviously the start of this season after that was pretty anticlimactic and disappointing. And I thought a lot of people, you know, started to, because of the expectation that I think winning the FA Cup created, um, I think, yeah, a lot of people disappointed, obviously. But, you know, we are, what well, we're 10th in the league for a club like Arsenal it's not acceptable unless you're in transition. Mm-hmm. 
And I think really you have to start seeing uh, progress. I mean, Odegaard on loan was an absolute masterstroke, to be honest. I mean, that's exactly what we needed. And people were saying, oh, what about Smith Rowe? You know, we, uh, why are we bringing in someone in that position? Well, you can see now, because he's absolutely world-class, this guy. And he's playing, he's played more games for Arsenal than he has for Madrid already. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's absolutely, you know, he's fitting in really well. He's enjoying his game. We've got a chance to actually sign him permanently, um, which is amazing. And I think, yeah, it's it's identifying players like that. Party, I think, when he's fully fit and he's got to run the games together. Gabriel at centre back, like all of the signings that has, that Arteta's made, I think, have been incredibly strong. And uh, you know, clearly. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't have let Martinez go. I think that was a mistake, but I think to fund the party move, it's kind of understandable. If 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 the board, now we're in a position because of COVID, if the board back um, Arteta and the owners, you know, are willing to fund, for example, Odegaard, we need to be pushing for top four next season, really. That's not, it's, it's not acceptable to not be challenging for top four next season. If we win, if we win the Europa League, you know, then that takes a massive weight weight off, I think, and I think we'll be able to do much more in the transfer window. But do we, I think I think they've made the right call getting someone like Arteta in. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think I agree. Yeah, we're showing glimmers of a club that just still have a lot of promise. But like with the Odegaard thing, I think that that shows great ambition and I just hope that Zidane stays in charge at Madrid so we have the <laughs> yeah. otherwise he could outplay his chance to to sign for us um if, if that makes sense because he is he is good enough to to play at the top level but now we're just paying for some some inadequate and quite frankly embarrassing signings of the past like our transfer policy like trying to claw back some experience like when Arsene Wenger left they clearly got in groups of players to try and cover for that lack of experience, like players that have passed their best, Socrates, Louise, Lich Steiner, for fuck's sake. Um, And we just had like a mix of players that are either past it, like maybe 30 plus, or a lot of promising players like under 23. And there wasn't that many who were in their sort of prime years, like around 25, 28. But um, I think that that's starting to mould together a little bit better now. Yeah, I think think the rot set in in terms of transfer policy quite quite a while ago, to be honest. I mean, Mm -hmm. when... When Arsene Wenger first became Arsenal manager, he had a superior knowledge of the French league, and David Dean was the only person that was going to the Africa Cup of Nations every year. So you had like uh, immediately a market that no other club, mm. or markets that no other clubs in the Premier League were really paying any attention to. So of course you had an advantage there, but really we, you know, I thought the Mislin Tat signings were okay. You know, he arguably brought Aubameyang in. He, I mean, but then. Socrates, not good. Uh, then you, Mkhitaryan, not good. Um, so you know, I think that there, there was definitely, I think we were devoid of any kind of plan. I think, you know, if you look at the, particularly the latter day Wenger years, it was like, okay, Lacazette, we'll bring him in and then we'll bring in Aubameyang, sort of similar profile. Um, and then it was like Kolasinac, Mustafi, players that just simply weren't good enough, right? And he was sort of taking a punt on. Um, Klassen actually sort of reminded me a bit of Andre Santos, you know, just sort of like take a punt on him because it's a... But like, 
yeah. really just not good, like not good enough. And and it was a, I think that was a feature of kind of the end of the Wenger years and the, and the Emery sort of tenure. Um, although to be fair to Emery, you know, he would have signed Zaha um, instead of Pepe, for example. So I don't think he was fully in control of the transfer policy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Mustafi signing I've, I've found a, a little bit strange. It was like they glossed over his CV and saw a World Cup winner and thought, we need to get this bloke in. Um, and it just didn't end that well. No, definitely not. Um, but I mean, I think the defence now is looking reasonably good. Uh, I, I think Holdings become a better player. I think uh, Louise was obviously, that was a signing that was widely mocked, but I think he fits the system pretty well, um, playing out from, from the back. And yeah, I mean, I I even think Cedric was a decent sign. To be fair, I think he's done all right as a backup right back. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, I agree. and Tierney obviously Tierney's been amazing. But yeah, yeah, I'm already dreading the day that um, that Tierney and Saka leave for a leave for City or, or, or someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you had to fill in two positions now in that ask current Arsenal team, which positions would you fill? What you mean, like swap out? I would, yeah, I, yeah, bringing a bringing a uh, new player. Yeah. yeah. I, I I would bring in Odson Edward up front. Mm-hmm. Um, whether that means Aubameyang on the left or Lacazette in the number ten or whatever, rotate. Uh, I think someone like that would be brilliant. And I think we need a new right back. So um, it's difficult to say. I don't know, but I think we need a new right back. What do you think? Yeah, I've, I've, the right back situation is is a bit strange. We're going to end up with just a string of right backs that are all fine, but none of them are are, are very far in front of the other. Like Callum Chambers had a great game the other day, and that just sort of solidifies that. I, I think this is a, a, a good a good point though. Like, but Bellerin has been okay. I don't think he has improved as much as everyone thought he would. Like, given where he was five years ago, for example. Do you remember that game against Chelsea at home in 2016 when there was that really quick move with yeah. Iwobi, Bellerin, Walcott, right? And it was just like bang, bang, bang. And it was like, wow, this guy, like, he can join the attack. He's quick, he's sharp, he's great at, like, you know, first-time assists or whatever. And it's just not really it's not really come on since then at all. If anything, you know, you'd argue maybe he's even progressed. So, mm-hmm. like, I think Cedric can do what he does, which is be the backup and he'd be happy to be the backup but I just think you know even putting someone like Chambers in there who was involved in three goals at the weekend um, Chambers is not even a natural right back so it does show you what we're missing on that side and if we can get someone like a bit more like Tierney I don't know um, yeah why not simply sign someone like Tierney (laughs) yeah why don't we just clone Kieran Tierney just put him in every position then then we'll be fine (laughs) (laughs) Um, you've spoken about the path that that gambling took you down but I'm I'm, I'm keen to hear first if if football was was a big part of that or was it mainly the the fixed odds betting terminals that that you've spoken about football definitely got it hooked me in so my first bet was on an Arsenal match against Man U don't know if you remember 2006 Uh, I think it was late January maybe early February Uh, Highbury nil-nil uh, I bet on Arsenal 1-0, didn't, obviously didn't win that. But while I was waiting for my friend to put a bet on, I was underage at the time as well, um, I put the money in the machine in the, in the fixed odds betting terminal and that kind of um, 
set it off really that was the what set off the chain reaction and uh yeah um then obviously that summer there was the world cup in germany and uh world cup was the first sort of international tournament where i was putting bets on and i was in the bookies a lot and didn't really have a problem with the football betting but that wasn't where the problem was um like I would go in and I would think, oh, should I put five pounds on a match? You know, that's, a, or should I put a pound on an accumulator? Is that, you know, is that, I think very carefully about the bets I was putting on. Um, but um, with the machines, it was like yeah, 10 pounds a spin. Like there was no kind of, I, I had no concept of money when it was in the machine. And that, and that was sort of what, that was what drove the addiction. Um, and I just sort of lost lost control really uh, every time I every time I started gambling those machines. Even if I was like, oh, I just take twenty quid in, it just never never worked out that way. Mm-hmm. How quickly did it did it become quite a, quite a major problem then? Within within two two or three months, I'd say. Okay. Okay. Yeah, like a like a ma- major problem in that, mm. uh, like like I started a job in April that year uh, which was paying pretty well that was like a part-time job while I was in I was still in school um, and I started that and I was earning like decent money um, and I just like put all my money in the machine as soon as I got paid so that's when I knew it was a big problem and mm-hmm. um, although that didn't really make me want to stop which I just thought, oh, when I get paid next time, I'll have better luck. So, uh, yeah, um, from that from that point, I was just thinking about the next bet all the time. And every time I was getting money, that was the first thing I wanted to do with it, was to go to the bookies and gamble. And eventually I was in there every day. And uh, when I, <clears throat> I, I, I did... I did A levels and uh, got got into my second choice uni. I completely screwed up my A levels because I, I was in the bookies all the time, um, but still went off to uni. But I was I was fully addicted to gambling uh, when I was at uni, fully like fully. Uh, just about made the lectures in the bookies the rest of the time, constantly gambling all the time. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad. And then the worst, the worst it got to was I, I, in one day, I'd maxed out two different overdrafts, which you weren't supposed to have. You weren't supposed to have two student accounts, but I did. Um, and my loan, and I went to the, there was a branch of the bank on campus, and I went there and I just said, give me all the cash. I just gave the cash. Went straight down to the bookies. Because I'd cut the card by sorry, I'm going to the tangent here. I'd cut the card by that point for the bank because I thought I don't want to keep withdrawing money. It was like my way of kind of and then I just went in the bank and I was like, here's my ID, can I have all my money? And they just gave me like, I think it was two grand. Um and then I just lost all that in like a few hours. So that was that was the, the apex. And at that point I felt very like, sort of suicidal. Um was close to dropping out of university. A very um very dark time and uh yeah if, if, i think if, if it wasn't for uh, an intervention from from family i would have probably well i don't know what i would have done i, I was 
I was feeling very, very suicidal, to be honest. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I know, I know how difficult it is. I know how difficult it is to to stop and feeling like there's no way out and no, you know, uh, yeah, for me that, that it completely dominated my life and it affects you in ways that I don't think are properly understood by people. Gambling is seen as a kind of very, very much a socially acceptable part of our culture now. And for many people, you know, it might, might not be a problem. They might not do it very often. But for the people who actually contribute the majority of the profits of the industry, the 5% of the customers who are addicted or at risk, for those people, it affects them in a profound way. Mm-hmm. The mental health, the financial security, their self-worth, uh, self-esteem. It is, I think, like the most difficult addiction in many respects to um, to conquer. And uh, yeah, I have a huge amount of sympathy for anyone going through it, not least because I've been through it myself. Mm-hmm. So you said that it was sort of thanks to an intervention from your family. What were what were the initial steps made then then after to sort of get you out of out of that place that you were in? Well, I was I was driven home, um, and because uh, I because I, my parents went up to Birmingham, they were worried about I was going to kill myself. Um, and and it's 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 not like because it, just for anyone, it's not the the fact that I, I you know I'd lost a a sum of money by that point I'd lost about 20 grand in total but it wasn't that I just lost a sum of money and I was like oh god I've lost the money it wasn't really about that it was like I was when you're addicted to something you're just sort of doing the thing you're addicted to to escape all the problems that it's caused right so you're like it's your escape it's your self-medication almost but only because of the problems that, that the addiction itself has created uh, I didn't really have any mental health problems or any issues before I started gambling. Um, but when you can't gamble anymore, because you've done all your money, and you know, you're then having to face up to where it's got you, and you're then having to kind of confront the reality of what your behavior has led to and you know how it how it actually has impacted your life and you know all of that stuff. It's like and feeling like you can't stop, feeling like you have no agency and no ability to control, you have no control of the situation. It's all of those factors, mainly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's what leads to the, I think, leads to people taking their lives in that situation. Um, the loss of control. And I think coupled with a sense or like what gambling does like any addiction is it rewires your neural pathways so when 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 you are addicted to something so basically when you do something that you in, that you need to do to survive like eat or if you're really thirsty and you have a drink you will get a reward, feeling of reward from your brain. And that's your brain saying, you need to do this because otherwise you're going to die, right? So any addiction, you it, it rewires those pathways. So you, your brain is saying, you need to do this thing, otherwise you're going to die. So 
but it, that, that's that's the what drives people who are addicted to something right so for for me it was like it that was the thing that you needed that 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 was it was all I was it was all I was ever thinking about everything came was secondary to that thing that, you, that I was addicted to and uh yeah I'm, it's, it's it's difficult to to think back to exactly what it was that meant that I was able to well what it what it was in particular that helped that process of like rewiring that that uh what was causing the addiction you know how how I was able to 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 get through it but it was definitely a contribute a, a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy um i think trying to support from from friends and family and i think um i was at a point in my life where i, I could thankfully uh make up make up uh for lost time and i could like you know turn the corner and it wouldn't have impacted me that much thankfully i was very fortunate in that respect so i, I had a choice as a crossroads and uh it took me about six months to stop and it takes it takes a long time because uh, you know that that's that's what it is. even though it's not a substance gambling it, it is like your brain is saying you need to do this thing you need to do this to survive and that and that's the way it should be understood and it, it's crazy that that um that it, that it can do that, but but it it, it 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 is it is pretty addictive. I mean, we we, we I was looking at the numbers yesterday, and because uh, we we're sort of trying to compare it to the rates of addiction with with drugs and alcohol, and if of everyone that drinks, one percent of people uh, get addicted to alcohol. For everyone that smokes marijuana, nine percent of people get addicted to marijuana for everyone that gambles on online slots and casino 9.2 percent of people get addicted and cocaine is 17 percent so you look at that and you think it's more like drugs than it is alcohol right which to most people is like how is that possible but it is about conditioning and it's about you know how it is how pro gambling products and activities can be addictive by design and that is um how they've always how they've always operated and how they've always made money mm -hmm. so now years later do you mental health wise do you still carry a lot of baggage from that time in your life or is it something that you've you've managed to sort of compartmentalize and, and, and leave behind you or does it does it still still affect you sometimes yeah it still affects me um so i yeah so i think th this is what was pretty poorly understood i think it, it is um it, it can have lasting mental health mental health impacts i think um certainly uh i i'm still i i, I do i do take medication for for anxiety i i um uh lots of people do yeah 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 um that's not, that's not a problem um and you know, I'd encourage people to, if they've got mental health problems, to take. It. I mean, you've got one life. There's no point living it, feeling uh, not your best if, you, if, if something can be done about it. Uh, and yeah, 
I definitely had a difficult time in recovery. My mental health was, was I think, when you're addicted to gambling, you're mostly sort of in suspended animation. You can keep up the pretense that everything's okay and you're almost not really having to confront reality. It is a bit of a dream world that you're inhabiting, right? And after that, you do have to face up to reality and rebuild everything almost from scratch. And that can be a very empowering and it can be a very uh, inspiring process, but uh, but it's also a very daunting process. And it's also, you know, you, you are left with um, the residual kind of depression and um, impulse to gamble. And, you know, there's, there's obviously the cravings and there's the, um, I mean, like I was severely, severely depressed afterwards. So I think if people if people were aware of like how it can affect your mental health, uh, other than like you might lose a lot of money, uh, then I think that would that would be greatly beneficial to people who are you know I don't think that's widely understood enough. This you know this just this thing that you can do can sort of make you feel like shit after a while. <laughs> mm, yeah, I find I find it quite interesting and fascinating but all like and really frustrating how easily your own mind can can play tricks on you i guess and it, it paints this narrative for you that makes you completely believe it and that this that's the truth for not even just addiction like if you're just some people are just dickheads and but in their head they're not because their their mind is so or part of their mind is so biased to that to that way of life that they will make any excuse that convinces you and it's it's quite hard to come to terms with the fact that sometimes your mind really works against you in in a lot of parts of life, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, um, I think one one of the things that going through all of that enabled me is um, to better understand myself, mm. to have a lot more empathy for others, and. Uh, like I feel like I know myself very well now. Like if I have an issue, I feel like I can resolve it. Right? Like I feel very like if there's any. Basically, I've become stronger as a result of it. It's a bit of a cliche, uh, you know. If you, you know, have if you have to confront adversity, then you, you know you get stronger. It, yeah. it, it is true, definitely true in my case. You know, it's like. Um, so, so yes, they're, they're positives in that respect. But I, I just think it's so important to, uh, to, to that people understand um, how how addiction works, and like you know, I think that we have to, we have, to have uh, sympathy and, and support for people who, who fall into it because it's not just a, it's not a character failure. Mm. It, it is a you know the, the human brain can be conditioned to be addicted to things, and that is effectively uh it's almost like a virus of the brain and it, it, it's it's malware uh, uh and your brain's been reprogrammed by external forces and it has to just be uh you know you have to get the norton antivirus in and you have to clean it up mm, yeah i think that's that's a that's a nice way a nice way of putting it i guess um do you um, do you have friends that gamble or do you agree with like the the or disagree probably with the general premise of it because I've never been one to to really 
to to gamble at all. Like I, I, at one stage of my life, I'd put like one or two pound acres on when when I worked on Saturdays. Everyone did, and it was just to make the afternoon go quicker. But I've I've I don't have like a solid and controversial stance on gambling, so I don't I don't stop my friends from doing it. But I'm also quite tuned into like the stuff that you're saying there, the negative effects that it could eventually have on me. And I, I don't I don't really like it being brought up so casually like my friends will, will say oh, I've, I've put a 20 quid on this this weekend what do you think of these odds and in my mind I'm thinking I, I don't even want to talk about it like to me that, that's just a waste of money so I'm curious to hear if, if that's something that that you've ever had to deal with like friends around you I, I don't I, I don't have an opinion on whether people want to gamble or not that's not my business um, I'm perfect you know that's it's their choice if they want to gamble. What I do have an opinion on is how gambling is offered and the gambling industry and the way it operates. And uh, I think we can't do much about people's individual choices and we can't do much about, you know, in a free society, we can't do much about like trying to nudge people into making better decisions. I mean, I just don't, I don't really buy into all of that. What we can do is regulate the industry better to make sure that the harm is minimised. And that's kind of where my focus has always been. And, you know, none of the things that I think I'm campaigning for would impact on anyone's ability to enjoy betting if that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. I have a lot of respect for you for sort of challenging, challenging and taking your own experiences and then campaigning to, to support others. And you've successfully campaigned for spending caps on fixed or betting terminals, which is great. But do you think there are further steps that are inevitable um, in that area, sort of across the entire industry that are, are, we're going to see in, in the next few years to help those who are getting addicted to gambling? Yeah, I, mean, I think there's, there's, the two, there's the two strands. There's the prevention of addiction and there's also you know helping those who are addicted already so i think the, the stake limits on fixed odds betting terminals are very much preventative you looked at like the rates of problem and at-risk gambling associated with fixed odds betting terminals it was about 45 percent, 45 to 50 percent, which is huge right so we're talking about around half the people that use the machines will lose more than they can afford basically which is just yeah, tells you there's a problem with the product. So if you yeah. restrict the product and you, you limit, then you limit the harm that arises from it. And I think it's looking at it from that perspective rather than can we help these people that get addicted? It's like, okay, what's causing the addiction in the first place? It's not all these individuals that are all just got some predisposition to be gambling addicts. It's actually this product here that you've made to be addictive, that you've put in an easily accessible venue that you're allowing people to bet up to a hundred pounds every 20 seconds on. Maybe that's the problem <laughs> you know, so let's do something about that. Um, so that is very much preventative. And I think there are other preventative measures that will be applied now to online along the same logic. So at the moment you can gamble any amount per spin on online slots. So like there's no real, I think, legitimate reason or logical reason why that should be any higher than what you can gamble in a land-based venue. Uh, on a machine in a in a, a premises that employs people and pays tax and is based in the UK and you know why are we allowing stakes higher than that online? So I think that will come out of the gambling review. There's a an, 
a proposal that's looking at affordability as well. So if you were to gamble or lose, sorry, more than £100 a month that the operator should have to carry out an affordability check at that, that moment, that could be done in the background. It wouldn't have to be intrusive. What we found this week actually is there's a story in the New York Times about how um, Skybet are like the, the data that they hold on that. individuals. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the idea that this it would be intrusive to use data to protect people, but they're using it to advance commercial ends. I think there's an inconsistency there in their argument. So I think we will probably see affordability checks. And then there's the advertising as well, which obviously um, there's been reports that the government's definitely looking at uh, front of shirt sponsors, but we're hoping they're probably going to go further on that basis because if they're saying that that's a problem because of children's exposure to gambling advertising, then then why not extend that to the pitch perimeter? Why not extend that to TV? Um, so yeah, I think there's quite a few things that we're hoping will get resolved in the review. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were touched on there about the the shirt sponsors. That's something that I think most people would agree needs to change because I think clubs have an undeniable obligation, in my opinion, anyway. Considering the amount of people that that follow them at various different age groups and the number of fans they have that see their see their content daily across social channels. It's not just when they see the team live. It's you see, it's the little the little sticker in the bottom of all of their social media posts and stuff like that. And I, I think clubs need to be held accountable. Like I, I hate that Arsenal have a betting sponsor um, when that crops up every once in a while on Twitter. It's just a shame to see. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that people don't really, um, are not really aware of about these sponsors is a lot of them aren't really operating much in the UK. They're just using the Premier League to advertise to markets where mm. gambling is illegal. So, uh, for example, if you, if you look at uh, Wolves sponsor, Mamba X, right? So that's that's what's called a Philippine offshore gambling operator, Pogo for short. So they're based in the Philippines and they're licensed to advertise in the UK through something called White Label. So... They don't really operate in the UK. They're using the Premier League uh, and the fact that Premier League is broadcast in China to bypass China's ban on online gambling and gambling advertising because China is the biggest market in the world. So it's like 1.4 billion people. And if you look at Mamba X as an example, it's even got Chinese writing on there, right? So it's pretty obvious what they're doing. Mm. Um, So what we're doing, the Premier League and... with our policy of allowing white labels and these companies to market on football shirts is effectively facilitating illegal gambling of the jurisdiction. So that's a small thing. But the other thing as well is the main thing here is normalizing gambling. And, uh, you know, children are growing up very, very much, I think, conditioned or used to betting being very much a part of, like, watching football. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed... Well, I loved the the idea of the "Don't Make a Hero Out of Gambling" ad because I, I guess I just I just never really thought about how young people are when they know about gambling uh, with with their money, even in gaming, like FIFA packs mm. and coins and stuff like that. Like we've seen, I think it was Belgium banned these in-game purchases, and I completely agree with that because as someone that when I was younger, when I didn't have my own 
debit cards and credit cards. I had my parents' accounts linked onto these. And to me, it was almost just like like free money. Of like, They didn't really ask any confirmation details. Just send it off and you're buying FIFA coins, which you then gamble mm. to see how good these, these players are. Um, yeah, so it, it's crazy how early people are conditioned. And yeah, that was something that I, I didn't think about until I saw that ad. Yeah, definitely. And, and the, the, they're seeing their team and the players, which they look up to and idolise, with the betting brand on it. So it, it does provide a real veneer, like a veneer of legitimacy, huge legitimacy to these brands, effectively tapping into the affinity people already have for the players in the club they support, right? So everyone remembers the sponsors. And we remember the sponsors growing up as children. You remember JVC and you remember O2 and you remember uh, Sega and Dreamcast, right? You remember all these sponsors, right? Because we're Arsenal fans and the, the children will be no different when they grow up. They'll remember they're, 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 when they're 18 and they're turning 18. It's the first thing they'll do is they'll be like, oh, you know, I remember Arsenal was sponsored by this team, this brand. I'll sign up for this. Like, so you're getting more and more 18 year olds signing up to all the betting apps as soon as they turn 18 it's like a, a rite of passage almost so if you're younger the younger you are the more likely and more vulnerable you are to, to addiction so it's not just about children gambling or their attitudes to gambling it's the problems that that stores up for when they are old enough to gamble as well um, mm-hmm. so yeah I don't think the consequences of all of this is uh, fully known yet yeah yeah I agree and it's, it's difficult for you see it a lot with like content creators and uh, like video makers and youtubers whatever whatever you want to call them like because these gambling companies are so well endowed financially they're happy the creators are so happy to be involved in some of their campaigns because the lucrative deals that, that they are given like i saw really awfully times like so terribly timed roman kemp did his documentary with bbc3 about losing his friend to suicide. It was a really powerful documentary about men's mental health. And because of the contract that he already has with Labrooks, in um, amidst his Instagram stories that he was posting like tributes to his friend and people talking about the documentary, there was a, plea, a pre-planned post with sign up to Labrooks now, go and do this. And it's, that's that that's so, it's such a shame to see. And it's, it's so weird to me that people don't put two and two together there so i guess that's that's where you're operating in in such a such a great space because you're you're yeah you're building that bridge i guess for people to understand yeah absolutely i think i, I did notice that on i think on twitter he actually removed the tweet which was good mm. um but yeah i mean that's the thing we i think it's becoming more and more known i think now like the gambling industry obviously there are commercially incentivized to try to play down the level of harm and the level, you know, the prevalence of people's issues with gambling and whatever, but everyone knows someone now it's got to that point where you either have had a bit of a problem or, you know, someone who has, and that's how widespread it is. There's no getting away from the reality. And that's why there's so much overwhelming support for reform. Like it cuts across it's one of those really rare issues that cuts across like political, demographic, regional lines. Wherever you are in the country, whatever age you are, you will most likely support severe restrictions on advertising. You'll most likely support 
limits to stakes online, affordability checks, all of the things that we want to see, basically. So there's no excuse for the government not to act. And yeah, we're, we're optimistic we'll get a lot of that done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, recently, sort of on that note, we've seen the collapse of Football Index, which for anyone that doesn't know is is a platform that basically advertised or advertises itself as a stock market for players, even though it's regulated by uh, the gambling commission and not a financial or, or exchange commission. Um, and I remember seeing ads for Football Index quite a while ago. And although I didn't get involved, I'd be lying if I said it didn't really interest me because stocks and shares are a world that a lot of people don't understand. It's very complicated, and but everyone feels like they should be involved somehow. And this made it feel like a similar or, or more familiar alternative that fans could see themselves like really benefiting from. So I know a lot about these players. I know I know about this value and that value, but I don't know about these, these Nasdaq companies and stuff like that. I don't know about how to trade stocks and stuff like that. But what were your initial thoughts when when you first heard of Football Index? I thought it was a really interesting concept. You know, I don't. I think I'd be lying if I said, you know, that this wasn't an interesting innovation in the gambling space. Mm. Um, obviously, the rigor that is applied to operators seeking a license to offer gambling is just we've always known is just not really. Um, up to scratch and the regulator isn't really fit for purpose so we're in a um, yeah I mean I didn't know much about the business model Uh, I didn't know that there might be an issue with the way that the business was relying on new customers I did I had heard that from people but you know, I think a lot of people were very invested in what looks now like it had certainly become a pyramid scheme. Mm-hmm. And if you're in that position where you're, you've put a lot of money into something and someone is saying, this is a pyramid scheme, you're going to get quite defensive and say, no, it's not, because you don't want everyone to take their money out and then collapse the whole thing, right? So what they had created almost was some incredibly loyal customers who were able, who were defending the platform for a long time. And just for people who haven't heard about, about it, um, effectively what they did was created assets that were tradable and these represented footballers and they were paying dividends out on things like goals, assists, clean sheets, performance, you know, media coverage and all that stuff. And the, value therefore of these assets was driven by the amount of dividends these players have received so the better the player the more their value would go up because people would want the shares in that player obviously in a conventional stock market you're trading shares in actual companies that make profit that's where the dividends come from these assets were i mean you weren't actually buying a share in a footballer you were buying just a it was thin air basically that was being traded there was no value that was being created. So it got to the point where because they weren't generating enough from the commission on the trades and because, you know, they were putting a lot of the, they weren't keeping a reserve uh, of, of cash relative to the stock market that they created. And they put lots of money into the marketing and are trying to grow the business. They were desperate for new customers to pay the dividend obligations to their existing customers. And then, 
when they couldn't do that, when they thought they couldn't do that, they cut the dividends and this created a run on the stock market. So the market collapsed. So about 90 million was wiped off the value of the index. And people, because they had believed in the concept, they bought into the concept, literally, that some of the people had cashed in their ices, taken equity out of their houses to invest in this stock market. And um, you know, they were getting, for a time, they were getting incredible growth. The growth that they were getting in their investments was far outstripping, you know, long-term savings accounts, ISAs, any, you know, any kind of the stock market. Um, and obviously the context here was coronavirus as well. So you had lots of, in, lots of incentives and reasons why people would, you know, just put their savings into this thing. Equally, they were misled by the directors. The directors were saying how great a position they were in financially. They were going from strength to strength. Um, big plans on the horizon, global expansion, deals with NASDAQ uh, to uh, enable better kind of uh, technology that underpins the trading. Basically, the whole thing looks now like it was a, towards the end, certainly a pyramid scheme. And uh, lots of the people that were loyal to the, to the platform and the product out of, you know, I think, towards the end, certainly necessity because they'd invested so much in it. Uh, have now kind of that's been inverted and they're incredibly angry at having been misled and that's why uh, they've formed the what's called the FI Action Group and Cleanup Gambling is working very closely with, with that group and with the law firm Lee Day and we're trying to get we're investigating possible causes of action against the company the directors and maybe the Gambling Commission as well mm-hmm. For someone that, that isn't clued up maybe on, on like the regulations that should be in place how how did the gambling commission fail here well firstly they licensed the product they didn't fully understand right. i mean that's that's the first mistake um when you when you have uh when you when you have a, a, a legal and regulated betting market you expect as a customer to have basic consumer protections upheld. So in fact, if anything, it should be a higher standard of consumer protection. And what I mean by that is if you're putting a bet on, that is a wager on the outcome of something. It is not a bet also on the viability and sustainability of the company you're having the bet with. Mm. And that's kind of what we got to. This company wasn't able to honor the bets that it had taken. And the Gambling Commission should never have allowed that situation to occur. It shouldn't have licensed it in the first place if it thought the business model wasn't sustainable. It should have understood the business model. But it was alerted in January 2020 that this was a pyramid scheme. And it took them until May 2020 to start investigating. And during that investigation, which... As far as I'm aware, I don't, I don't know if it's concluded, but from that moment that they had their license, that they had the company investigated, they were signing deals with QPR, the sponsored QPR, like they signed the shirt sponsored deal. They were doing things to encourage people to put more money into the platform. So that's for me where the gambling commissions failed. It knew that there might have been a problem with this product, this company. And instead of 
suspending the license, freezing the assets, working out what the hell's going on, they effectively enabled the propping up of this pyramid. And that's that, that was why a lot of people in the last few months have lost even more money um, because they were, they were given these reassurances by the directors. So, <clears throat> yeah, they failed at multiple levels, really. But I think it's just brought into sharp focus the not fit for purpose regulation and uh, lack of an ombudsman. There's nowhere to go for consumer redress. So that's why we're, we're working with Lee Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like you mentioned there, you're working with customers that were affected uh, by, by the collapse. How, how badly have some of them, some of them been affected? Oh, it's, it's been devastating for a lot of people. I've spoken to um, a lot of people, not insignificant number of people who have lost tens of thousands in this. Some who have lost hundreds of thousands. And that's what we're talking about. That's how much, these are not, these are um, very highly intelligent people. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that to cast dispersions on people who normally gamble or anything like that. What I'm saying is these are people who are analytical and who believed in the product and were, obviously they were completely misled, particularly towards the end, but they did their research and they felt like they understood it well enough and they weren't having a punt. They were, they felt like they were investing mm. and, you know, if they bought shares in Jaden Sancho and Jaden Sancho's value has collapsed, it's not because Jaden Sancho is now not a very good player. It's because the platform has not been run in a way that's sustainable and that is not their fault. So what they did, I don't, you know, I, 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 I think that, that they are the victims in, in this situation. And, uh, you know, I'll do everything I possibly can to get redress for these people. And there are, you know, there are, ten, there are tens of thousands of users of this site. There, there have been, well, at the last count, about 7,000 people signed up with Lead Day, uh, you know, to hear about the investigation and more than a thousand, probably higher than that now, but signed up formally as clients. So we're talking about, you know, tens of millions, uh, cumulative losses. Mm-hmm. All right. So I see. I, I don't think I probably didn't understand quite as, as to the scale of it, but hopefully all those people are, I don't know, they're, they're, they're sorted out in, in some way or another. Mm. We, we've spoken about your experiences with gambling and campaigning, but another big part of your life is politics. Now, like I said, I, I don't want to go into too much politics just because it's a football and mental health podcast, but this is a bit of a far stretch, but I, I feel like politics has some similarities to the world of football Twitter where both can sort of uh both can sort of lack maturity at times and acceptance of of other views even as an observer it can be uh it can be quite hard to handle at times it can really take it out of you but i want to know how how being involved in politics has shaped your personality good question um well i've definitely grown a thicker skin uh, <laughs> i uh, i i i've I, I think um, 
this is I'll be completely honest, right? It, it, I, I used to care more about what people think. Right. And now I, I, I now it's forced me to not care about that, which I think is a good thing. I think that's a that's a positive. And you know, the only the only the, the I mean I, I I do I do care to a degree, but like I don't let it define me mm-hmm. or my perception of myself. So so it's quite deep. But um, you know, genuinely that is that's that's one of the things that has um uh effect, sort of shaped my personality in that way and the only, the only person I, I think can judge judge myself or judge myself based on my own kind of metric which is good um mm-hmm. uh and as a result of that you know i do get a lot of abuse uh i do get a lot of um stick uh but it's fine it's part of it and uh you know i kind of accept it really as part of, you know, if you put yourself out there, if you've got a platform, the price of influence is you will get people who disagree and who uh, abuse you. That is kind of it. That's that's the game. Um, so, look, sometimes it crosses a line, of course. You know, if, um, I think other people get it much worse than I do. And obviously some forms of abuse are unacceptable obviously when you veer into racism and misogyny uh you know that's clearly clearly not what i'm talking about here i'm just talking about you know some of the some of the vicious kind of uh responses that i tend to get um but like yeah i think i've definitely grown a thicker skin and i think um uh yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else, really. I mean, I've just, I work, I work much harder now. I have nothing, nothing, uh, nothing will ever be more difficult than being a press person for Jeremy Corbyn. Everything I do in my life now just seems much easier. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't work 18 hour days now. Maybe I'll work 12 hour days. I don't, you know, I, I sometimes have a 15 minute window where I'm not on my phone. You know, nothing is, is ever going to be as difficult as that. So, I, you know, that, that that's really has, I think, propelled me in, in a positive way, too. Mm-hmm. How how did that happen then with, with Jeremy Corbyn? How did you become his his official spokesperson? It's a really boring story where I just applied for the job and uh, I got the job and uh, um, uh I had worked in politics previously right. and I had worked, I, I was campaigning against fixed odds betting terminals then. Obviously the profile of the campaign was not what it was after I left. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was in at the deep end. Nothing can prepare you for something like that. And it's like one of those things that I think lots of people don't do things because they haven't done it before. But the only way you learn is if you do something and even if you feel uncomfortable, that's when you're learning because you have to adjust and grow into it. And whatever anyone says, nothing that can prepare you for a job like that, high intensity mm. political communications. That is everything you do is being scrutinized. If you make a mistake, it will be magnified a hundred times. You have to learn to be incredibly diligent and work quickly. It's like a two, the two things that difficult to do at the same time basically like usually if you're rushing or if you're having to work quickly that's when you make mistakes you have to be able to do both of those things incredibly difficult and obviously i made mistakes but i think 
actually goalkeeping helped because when you make a mistake when you're in goal, you have to put it behind you. You have to keep going. Mm. And if I if I made a mistake in that role, yes, it's magnified. Yes, I fucked up. But I'd learn. You know, thankfully it didn't happen too often. I'd learn. You know, put it behind you. Go on, keep going. So that helped as well. Um, just that kind of mentality. And I think, as you know, when you work playing goal, you have to have that kind of quite unique mentality where you just have to sort of keep keep looking forward uh, and you know learn from it and, and and go again. Did you study politics at UOB? Yes, I did. did. I studied politics. Yeah, political science. Okay, okay. You said I've really gone backwards here. We've only got a, a one Sorry. question left, but um, I go to uh, Birmingham City University, UOB's less impressive brother, um, I guess, in case you could call it. And Birmingham is a place that I think epitomizes. You were talking about like the access to to uh, to bookies, for example. Birmingham is a place that really epitomizes mm. that. Like where the area that I lived in Birmingham near in uh, near in Edgbaston. There's just every every corner around my flat. There's a pub and a and a Labrox opposite, it. and that yeah. Sorry, I just, I, that just thought just came over. I had to bring that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know it's just so many. There's so many. Um, so in in Edgbaston, I lived in Selly Oak mm. when I was there, and there's a William Hill. I think mm. uh, is it Coral? It's either a Coral or a William Hill, right near the campus. That was the one. I think it was a William Hill. Um, I was there all the time and uh, yeah when you could get off the train at New Street there's like five oh, yeah. lesson shops as soon as you leave it's, yeah they're incredibly prevalent in Birmingham yeah sorry to divert the conversation completely there but um, back on to back on to uh, your work with Jeremy Corbyn the the messaging in the 2017 election it was uh, it was very relentless it was very clear and it got a lot of people interested in politics that that showed no interest beforehand. Like the social media strategy, it it just worked. It felt like it really clicked into place. You have thousands of people at festivals cheering Jeremy Corbyn's name, like it was a it was an amazing era, I think, for for the Labour Party. But what do you think are the key things that that have changed on I guess on both sides since that era that feels like such a long time ago now? So I know that's quite a big question to try and condense into into one. Well, I, th- I think uh, the Labour Party has returned to its um, its 2015 sort of state. Really, uh, uh, lot, lots lots of people after 2015 when Jeremy Corbyn got um, elected leader, like, oh, how has this happened? And I think that that question can be asked answered by looking at what's happening in the Labour Party today and just how like toothless it is and doesn't know what it stands for, doesn't know what it believes in, doesn't know what vision it wants to enact, um, has no real inspiring quality to it whatsoever and seems to think that everyone who voted for Labour in 2019 can be denigrated and condescended and we'll still turn out for Labour next time around. And hopefully we can get a few more pensioners to vote for us, because that seems to be what the messaging is directed towards. Um, even though they're, you know, I just think highly unlikely to, to you know, given given the, the demographics and given the uh, economic factors to ever vote for Labour. So I think Labour's best chance is 
expanding the electorate, mobilising the base, mobilising young people, doing what we did in 2017, doing it better. That's the tactic, that's the strategy that needs to be adopted. And instead, it's like we're almost ignoring all of that, if anything, opposing that, distancing ourselves from it as much as possible, and just trying to trying to yeah, go for the, the over 65s and everything is orientated towards them. And as a result, I think we're just going to end up losing our new base. And our new base is young people, it's graduates, because graduates can be working class as well, right? This is the thing, right? It's not the working class is people who have to work to live, right? People who have to live off work. They don't live off wealth. They don't live off, you know, they don't have assets that they rent out. They will struggle if they don't get paid next month to pay their rent. They, this is the working class. This is also graduates. And that's Labour's, that should be Labour's base, but it feels like we are abdicating our responsibility to that new base. And instead we are, you know, more interested in what landlord pensioners might think of us, which I think is a massive mistake, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Fair enough, Matt. We'll we'll wrap it up there on, on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. No, that no, was, that was that was a, that was a real rant at the end. But no, that's my views anyway. So. No, it's okay. <laughs> I know that you you speak on a lot of other podcasts um, about politics and, and and stuff like that. So I'll I'll send people over there to uh to get that um to get, to get the content yeah. that, that I desire if 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 that's yeah. what they wish. But um, but Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. We've spoken about a, a lot of different topics. I really appreciate you sharing your your opinions and your beliefs and and the work the incredible work that you're doing now campaigning campaigning for to help people and to to help the industry of uh, of gambling in and around sport um yeah just thank you so much I, I hope you I hope you've enjoyed it yeah yeah definitely no it's been great thanks so much it covered loads of ground and uh uh yeah hope this is helpful and, and if anyone's got any um uh wants to hear more about cleanup gambling it's cleanupgambling.com and uh the Coalition Against Gambling Ads is CAGA.UK and Gamban, which is a blocking software I co-founded, think we get addicted to gambling, it's gamban.com and that can be obtained for free through the TalkBan Stock Pilot, which is talkbanstock.com. Great stuff. I'll po- make sure I post those links in the description of this episode so you can find them easily. If you've been affected by anything that we- we've touched on, then then click on those links. Maybe we can f- find you help in some way. But um, yeah, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of season three. Uh, feel free to head over to the socials, find us on there, just search Football and Feelings. But we'll wrap it up. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.